You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, for some of you, you've been here throughout this uh, short series on family. Some of you haven't. I want to do a brief recap. I know that um, Lanny will bear with me during the recap because sometimes I do recaps every week, but I haven't done this during the series. Uh, We covered in this understanding of biblical view of marriage and family that marriage, first of all, is ordained of God. He's the creator and designer of marriage, and his intent for marriage is very clear and explicit in Scripture. And in Genesis, we, of course, see one of the primary reasons for marriage and the union of man and wife is that God said after he created the man, it's not good for man to live alone. To be alone. So part of the essence of marriage is that of companionship. And also, he said, be fruitful and multiply. So part of it is for procreation. And then we have in the New Testament, of course, when we get to Ephesians 5, we have the picture of marriage picturing Christ and the bride, the church. So it is a spiritual, if you would, picture of Christ and his union with the church as well. There are many blessings in marriage. Um, And yet, with all the blessings of marriage, the attrition rate, even among the Christian realm, is 50% failure. So as we look at that, we know that this is one of the biggest attacks of Satan, and that is against God's biblical design for marriage. Now, we know the world hates Judeo-Christian model of marriage, and they relentlessly attack consistently the view of Christian marriage. Uh, Secular humanists continually spew out hateful propaganda degrading the institution of marriage, Uh, the entertainment industry consistently mocks marriage in their movies and their themes and their books and their writings. The homosexual community has tried to pervert the biblical understanding of marriage. So it's no wondering, uh, no wonder that we have such an alarming rate of attrition in marriage, even amongst Christians. So as we've looked at the biblical view of marriage, we first considered the role of the husband. Now, the husband uh, is recognized from Scripture as being the head of the household. Now, when we consider headship and authority and submission, this was not changed after the fall. This was something that God has ordained from beginning of creation. 
And that is, uh, as we see from 1 Corinthians 11.3, that Christ is the head of every man, head of every man, and man is head of every woman, of the woman, and Christ, God is head of Christ. So there's a headship and authority even shown in the triune Godhead. Even though, as we look in their essence, there's complete oneness and unity. And yet, in function, there is a submission role. That is, Christ is submitted to the Father, and the Holy Spirit brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the role of man and wife in a marriage, the husband has been given that role of headship. And to say that man is the head of the family, what that is basically saying is that man is responsible for the spiritual oversight. Now we're looking in the Christian unit here as a family. He's responsible for spiritual oversight, for provision, for protection, and for guidance for his family. Now it's an awesome responsibility. And uh, as we look at that, we know that it's filled with responsibility. And yet, uh, when we consider the role of a husband and a father, let me ask this question in light of what we've studied. Is it possible for any man to carry out that role in his own strength? No, it's utterly impossible. So as we consider the role of the husband, it has to be one of submission to the Lord and his word. But God doesn't leave us without any guidance. He gives us very specific instruction. And when we consider his instruction, uh, much of it that is given to us uh, in light of Ephesians or Colossians or any of the texts that we have viewed thus far, uh, when we look at the original language, it's very, very specifically given in what's known as the imperative mood uh, and the present tense. Well, when you use those terms defining uh, what these t- uh, uses of the grammar we consider how important it is to understand when he's, when we look at the imperative mood, that means it's in the command form. In other words, we could have people offer advice to us, and often we do have people offer advice to us as to marriage or family or raising children, and we could either take it or leave it. Because it's advice, maybe from a friend, it may be wise advice, it may be Worthless. But when we look at God's word and we consider that it's an imperative mood, there's a whole different context to that. Imperative mood is a command form. God doesn't just make suggestions here. He's commanded us on how to live with our husbands, how to live with our wives, how to raise our children. If we disregard these imperative mood forms, then basically we're rebelling against not man and not man's ideas, but we're rebelling and rejecting the very God that created us and the very God that saved us. 
So we have to realize these command forms that are given to us for guidance in marriage are not to be taken lightly. So as we have considered some of these things, we see the man's role, the wife's role as that of submission unto her husband and to love her husband. But that submission is as unto the Lord. Oftentimes we see marriages, uh, when you look at it in terms of the context of Scripture, if one or the other is not submitted to the Lord, they're not going to be submitted to each other. The man is not going to carry out his role as provider and protector and encourager, nor is the woman going to submit. Why is that so if we're Christians? How could we have such a a conflict in a relationship between a husband and wife if you're both believers? Okay, Dorothy says we're not following the role that the Lord has given us and set up for us. We have to go back to the fall, back to Genesis 3. When God created man and woman, they were what? In perfect communion with God. Until the fall, they were in perfect communion with each other. They had a perfect relationship. And in a sense, their relationship was united in God because God created them. They loved each other. There was no shame in their relationship. And they were both in communion with God. Perfect. Absolutely perfect relationship. But after the fall, what happened to the woman's desire to submit to her husband? Thomas. Woman wished to uh, not submit, but also to rule over, even to take that, to take upon herself that particular role. Okay. Well, it's actually the wife's desire was for her husband. That is, her desire was to control her husband. That's what happened after the fall. The husband wanted, rather than to have headship over his wife, he wanted to rule over and control his wife. So that tension was there after the fall because of what that did to the nature of man because of sin. So this carries into, excuse me, this carries into the relationship in marriage and family because if one is not submitted to God and one is not submitted to his word, then there's going to be that conflict. So it all comes back to that of being submitted to God's word, walking by the Spirit, and being filled with the Spirit. In fact, Paul premises all his studies here before he gives any mandates or any imperatives. He talks about walking and being filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. So we looked at that. And we looked at the husband's role, the wife's role. Then we considered that of qualifications for marriage when we talked uh, to the youth and some of those that would be prospectively considering marriage. And we also discovered from Scripture that not everyone should or has to get married. 
Because Paul said, I'd rather, 1 Corinthians 7, that you would be as I. And the reason was because there's so many cares in this world. Marriage is a great blessing, and yet along with it, a great responsibility. So Paul was encouraged in some of those that if God would grant that, that they would serve him in their singleness. So either way, it is a blessing from God. But those who are married and those who do are blessed with children, then also God gives them guidance for raising those children. But he prefaces in this context, and we'll turn to Ephesians 6, where we left off last time. And Paul begins with the children, addressing them. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on earth. Now here again, the youth that are here, we're looking at something that it is, it's called in the imperative form, and it's a present tense. Present tense means that it's ongoing practice. So when Paul's telling the children to obey their parents, it's an imperative. It's not a suggestion, and it's not saying, well, if you feel like it, if it doesn't rub you the wrong way, he is commanding them to obey their parents. Now, he makes it comprehensive, but he says this, in the Lord. Well, you you may want to frame that in to your thinking here because if you are in a family situation in which there isn't biblical guidance from a parent and they were urging you or calling you to do something that was against Scripture, then you're not obligated to do so because you're not called to violate God's word in order to obey your parents. So that would be the condition there. And the same with the wife being submissive to their husband in the Lord. The husband is demanding something that it would be unbiblical for his wife to do. She does not have to comply and she shouldn't comply. So that's the the exception. So when we talk about obedience to their parents, um, that is something that is talking about a children's actions. And their actions is one of obedience in response to their parents' desires and governing authority. When it goes to the next portion of this, it says, honor your parents. Um, that is showing respect. And, you know, when we talked about in our process of study and family and marriage and children, we also discussed that of widows and widowers. Uh, when it talks about honoring your parents, that would include taking care of parents who perhaps lost their spouse. And so the responsibility of that is carried over in Timothy, where it discusses widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
So as we consider widows, uh, we also discovered that the word for widows is not just talking about one who lost her husband through death, but one who was abandoned by their husband. In other words, a husband divorced his wife. So either way, they come under this category of widows to be cared for. Now, in the event that there's no surviving children or surviving family members to care for a widow or a widower, then what? The church is to provide for those widows. So we have to remember that in light of how much God considers care for women, widows. The family member, any surviving family member should be taking that responsibility. If there is no one to take that responsibility, then the church must take that responsibility. So that's part of the word honor your parents. That would be showing concern, care, respect, and obedience to your parents. So that is attitude. The first one was an action, obeying. The second one, honoring. That's also an attitude as well as action. <clears throat> now we have an interesting verse here, verse 4. <clears throat> we covered the children uh, the last time we had our class. But here, verse 4, it says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Pretty interesting. Um, One verse. Now, how many verses did we have in chapter 5 for husbands? Big portion of that chapter was directed to husbands of how they should treat their wives and how they should love their wives. Other parallel passages, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, 7, all those directed to the husband. We come to parenting, one verse. You know, Paul was a master at brevity of words. He could say, give one verse inspired of God, and it would be all comprehensive. So you might think, well, why is it that Paul is addressing here just the fathers? Doesn't he recognize the whole family unit? I mean... The mother's role? Uh, boy, when we think of the mother's role, uh, we think of somebody who, uh, like Hannah, who raised Samuel, or Lois and Eunice, who raised Timothy. What impact did they have on the children? So, Is it just directed to fathers here? Well, one commentator says, well, that um, the reason Paul did this to fathers is because they were so negligent in that society and in the Roman culture, which this is true, Roman culture, there was a law that said that fathers had the authority within their household to do whatever he wanted with his children. In fact, the practice of that time during the New Testament period was 
When a baby child was born, they would set that child at the feet of the father. If the father stooped down and extended his hands and picked up the child, they were to keep it. If he turned, walked away, they were to dispose of it. That was Roman cultural practice. So it was harsh, much to the same that we do in our society today with abortion. So here, some commentators think, well, Paul's addressing the fathers because they had such a significant role and they had really abandoned that role. And so just because of that abandonment of the role, then the mothers were to take over. Well, if we do a careful study, which we should, of any text, uh, the word father here is from the word patrias, which is translated parents. It's also translated in Hebrews 11.23 as parents when they said Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his patrias, parents. So this is including mother and father. So this address here is not just to fathers, even though here it is translated fathers. It's addressed to mothers and fathers. So the first admonition that is given is not to provoke your children to wrath. Well, I've done a lot of studying on this uh, to see what various commentators had to say about this provoking uh, your children to wrath. So we're going to look at that and consider some of those things. But before we do that, I want to consider some of the aspects of this mandate which is given to parents. Now, as a rule, the mother is most influential to children. Would you agree? I mean, the mother is there when the child gets up. The mother is usually there for the child's breakfast, and those that are in their homeschool, they spend all day with their children. Those that are sending them off to school, prepare their breakfast, their lunch, send them off to school, pick them up. So mothers have the most impact on their children. They have the most time, they have the most influence, and they have the most sphere of influence on their entire being as they're raising them up. Now, we, I suggested and looked and considered uh, Hannah as the influence she had in Samuel's life, and we considered Lois and Eunice. There's multitude of biblical examples in Scripture of mothers influencing their children. But why is it that Sometimes fathers abdicate, abdicate this responsibility. Why is it that they don't carry out this responsibility? Well, I have a good quote here from a man by the name of Dr. Wayne Mack. Now, he's one of the theology professors and one of the professors uh, at um, Master Seminary for Biblical Counseling. And he says this. In some cases, husbands has 
literally given the role to their wives as her responsibility. His philosophy being that he makes the money and provides for their physical needs. So she should take care of the home and children. He will not expect her to do his work, and nor should she expect him to do her work, which is taking care of the children. In other cases, this happened by default. He becomes too involved in his work, or even at church, or in some other activity, rather than to help with his children. I mean, he hardly ever sees the children. He is almost never home. And when he is, he doesn't want to be bothered with details. So he thinks he has enough trouble solving the problems he faces on his job or in church or in other obligations. So he doesn't want to be confronted with difficulties at home. After all, he reasons, a man can only take so much. And it's not that he is not concerned or that he doesn't love his children, but no man has the time or energy to do anything Besides, his wife has plenty of time, and she's better with the children anyway. End of quote. Well, that's fairly common. I mean, uh, I must confess that at one point in time, my framework came under that category. I was unregenerate at the time. But nevertheless, that's the way I thought. I worked long weeks. I figured I'm providing well for my family. My wife can take care of the children. It isn't that I didn't love them. I just didn't want to be bothered. Didn't want to take the responsibility. It's a lot of effort to put into raising children, correcting when you get home, you're tired, you've already dealt with problems all day. Is that an excuse, men? No, it isn't. Because here again, this is in the imperative form, command form. It isn't as if we have... A choice. It is, if God has blessed us with children, we have also been given the biblical responsibility as fathers and overseers to care and to nurture and to raise these children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now we're going to look in that in detail, what that means, nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because it isn't just a philosophy. It is following biblical mandates and carrying those biblical mandates out with admonition, that is correction, and reproof according to God's word. That's that's the role and the function of the Father. So as we consider this uh, aspect of the husband's role, the father, then... um, When it comes to the home and the father, we have to say the buck stops here. We have that responsibility. We are the ones, if we have children, to be responsible. We can delegate and we can cooperate with our wives. But here is an important aspect of that. As we consider a husband being the head of the home, This is where communication, remember we did that a couple of weeks or a few weeks on communication, husband-wife communication. Here's where communication is essential. If we're not discussing with our wives the pattern 
in the biblical mandates of Scripture of how we're going to raise our children, then you're just kind of playing it by ear. Well, we got this situation. What do you want to do now? Or we just may react out of anger, out of need of the circumstance of the moment, but not really have any parameters. So this is where the husband and wife can join together in planning. You know, if you were to say somebody comes up to you and says, I'm going to give you guys a trip. So you're going to, let's say, have a trip to someplace. I don't know. Let's say to the Holy Land. And so you can plan it. It's going to be taken care of. And uh, so you sit down and you get a map of the Holy Lands and you go through Scripture and you see all the places you want to go to. And you plan your journey, you plan the tours, you plan the whole trip. That's just for a vacation. You have been endowed and entrusted with children's lives. How you do that, you're accountable to God. So can we see the importance here of the whole picture of how we train up our children, and how children are to respond to that training. What you do at home is going to impact them for a long time. Proverbs says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, that isn't a promise that they're going to do everything obediently throughout their life. But what that's saying is you're taking that child and you're molding and conforming that child as much as you can in accordance with biblical instruction. So as they grow older, these are already imparted in their very life behavior and their patterns. So this is the essence of what Paul is trying to guide the parents to see how important this responsibility is. So as we think uh, of this role of the father, uh, think of it in terms of he's somewhat of a manager. Now, I know there's a lot of men here who have had positions in management or oversight or as officers have governed and exercised authority over businesses, corporations, or military organizations, or units. And when you think of management, do you think about one man doing the work of ten? Or what does a good manager do? He has ten men under him, and he tries to find out which of their skills are best suited for what work performance. And that manager is able to take those people and use them to the best of their ability and the best to help him in the overall function of their job. That's what a good manager does. Likewise, in the home, you are to be able to discern what your child's skills and abilities are, help direct them. You know, the one thing that happens in our society, and we could probably talk to a dozen people 
and ask them, what, what's uh, your view of success? Well, some would say, try to give you a, a proper answer and try to stay in line with scripture if you're in a Sunday school class. But if you're just generally talking and say, well, what's success in your eyes? Some would point to monetary success. Some may point to celebrity, position, power, uh, a nice home, good job, all the material things. But what is success in light of raising a child in accordance with scripture and admonition of the Lord? What would you consider that to be as successful? Any suggestions? Okay, Al, uh, that you're well pleased with how these children turned out in their adult life. So how might that be? What, what would we say well pleased? What might that look like? Okay, Ron? They're leading a godly life. In other words, they are, they have a relationship with the Lord. And we have to recognize when we talk about raising our children in accordance with the nurture and admonition of the Lord, salvation is from God. But God uses people to bring truth. We can impart biblical truth to a child and bring correction and reproof even when they're unregenerate and more so that needed at that point. But it's God's work to bring salvation. But success is that of seeing a child who has indeed turned their lives and given their hearts to Christ in obedience to his call and them living a responsible, godly life. So you fail if your child doesn't become a Christian and all those things? No. No, that's why I said I prefaced that I know, with. I know, yeah, good point. Thomas brought out the point. It isn't a failure on the parent's point if the child does not accept Christ. That is not the work of man. That is the work of God. Our responsibility as parents is to give them truth, to model that truth, and much of the time we fail in that area. Thomas. Well, okay, both. Uh, the main thing is our responsibility as a parent is that of giving children truth and light and nurturing them in the uh, admonition and nurture of the Lord. That is our role and responsibility. Yes? Well, yeah, and then we have the lineage of Jacob as well. Uh, but... That's a great example, uh, Abraham, given that uh, mandate of raising his children according to God's law. Deuteronomy 6.6 6 is very prominent. Many of us can refer to that, uh, that we train up our children in the, in the truths of God's word, give it to 
as the, by the wayside, as we sit at the table, hang them by the doorstep. We're to expose our children to truth in every way that we can. But we're also to live those truths. Much of the time, uh, what happens with children or youth is they see this contradiction in the lives of the parent professing Christian or real Christian and this hypocritical example that they give. They say one thing and they're one way here, and then when they get home, they're totally different. That shouldn't be. We should be translucent, whether we're at church or at home, whether in the workforce. We should be the same individual. Ron. That says that in in the sense that we are to impart those truths, but that isn't a guarantee that somebody wouldn't be wayward later on in life. That is not an absolute yes. Well, that's yeah, that's pushing it quite a bit. I like that, but let's make uh, illuminate that before we let that one go. Uh, when he's promising the jail and your family also, that is talking that if they believe on the Lord Jesus, that isn't guaranteeing because one man was saved, their whole family saved. That, that would be universalism. And we know that we're saved by grace through faith. So we don't want to take that out of context, nor do we want to take out 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. It doesn't mean, uh, because scripture is replete with waywardness of Christians and the correction and reproof of Christians. So we can't say because a parent has been faithful to give proper training to their children that that's an absolute guarantee that they won't ever fail or turn from it. Uh, okay, Barb. Okay. Right. It isn't, it, it isn't a salvific verse. And we have to understand when uh, train up in the Hebrew there it actually uh, translates to touch the palate. Uh, when a Hebrew mother would uh, wean a child off uh, milk and bring solid food, she would take and make paste of the food, and she would take that paste and touch the palate of the child's mouth so that they started having a taste for the food. So training up the child in the way he should go is inclusive of biblical truth, but it's also developing the child's God-given talents and abilities so that they can use those to God's glory. So it encompasses both the spiritual and the physical realm of training up that child in completeness. So it isn't a salvific verse guaranteeing salvation. We have to make that clear because we can't, make a claim by doing something that somebody else is. Go ahead, Dorothy. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to understand that. If we try to take verses such as this or even the verse about the uh, jailer who, and if you, you and your family as well, we have to recognize salvation is a gift of God. It is a work of his grace and it is through faith. So it isn't imparted by our good training to our children, it, though we're commanded to do so. 
And the responsibility of salvation is completely and utterly God's. It's his work beginning to end. So good point, Dorothy. Yes, good to see you, bud. Excellent words. Did you all hear that? It's uh, the example of this woman was with her eight children was to make God big to their children. Make God who he is. The realization of the God that we love and serve of who he is and the revelation that we have from his word to be imparting that to your children. I think of, I think her name was Susan Wesley, who raised 11 children, some of, two of which were Charles and John Wesley. And her uh, thoughts on this issue of raising children was that if you do not take the mandates of Scripture to train up your children and to nurture them in the word that you are doing, as Proverbs says, abandoning them and they will become as fools. So her philosophy was biblical in the sense that she knew that the only way to train up a child is through that of God's word. Uh, Proverbs 29, uh, 14 says this. I think it's 29, 14. A child left to himself, uh, 29, 15, I'm sorry. The rod and rebuke gives wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And that's the frame of reference that Mrs. Wesley was using in training up her 11 children. She had left to themselves they would be bereaved of any good deeds. But raised up in the nurture of God's word, then God can work through his word, which obviously he did with those boys. Okay, so we... Oh, we're running late here. Um, let me ask this question just to probe some thought here. Uh, when we talk about raising children, we're talking about a philosophy of ministry. And as you do that, as parents, you have to be able to formulate those philosophies based on Scripture. It isn't getting a, the counterculture book at the nearest Christian bookstore and finding out the ten ways to raise up your child. You have to examine Scripture and prayerfully Use that as a guide to govern your discipline, your philosophy of raising children, the parameters that you set, the form of discipline that you would carry out for various uh, acts of disobedience. And when we think of provoking the children, we're going to look at that uh, next week, but there are many things that can do that But what we're called to is to encourage our children. We should nurture them in love. We should nurture them with God's love and with God's word. We should be able to always make the home a safe place for a child. Child does fail and will fail, and you have to allow that. But to lovingly discipline them and govern them through that. So we have to learn what are the parameters from Scripture that we would use for that 
And what responses do we have to various forms of disobedience? Do we take a harsh treatment of that or too lenient? Or do we let it go for a while until we get too angry? How do we approach parenting with a biblical mindset still maintain our sanity? Good input here today. Uh, is there any questions before we close? Um, okay. I'm very thankful for all of you continuing to bear with me. We're going to be completing this study in the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to be resuming with the book of Romans, uh, exposition of Romans in chapter 9, which um, is quite controversial, and uh, I hope you'll join us and be able to offer some thoughts and comments because we're going to be entering into a very challenging text. Uh, I sat under, not very long, but I did sit under a teacher who was supposedly ex, doing an exposition of Romans, and when he came to 9, 10, 11, he said, I really don't understand this, so go on to 12. I was more than disillusioned. I didn't remain there. But anyway, uh, we have to recognize that God's word is challenging, but nevertheless, we're to examine it carefully and so that we can understand as much as we're able in our finite minds what God has revealed to us. Here we have this perfect picture of God's design for family. And let me just say this. when there's been a breakdown in family relationships and even a marriage failure, we have to recognize something that as we come to God, it doesn't mean that all those situations will, will always be reconciled, but we must understand God's grace is sufficient in any circumstance. And many here or several here have been through painful experiences And we know that God has and will give grace in those circumstances. He is the husband to the widows. He is the father to the fatherless. And we know that there's been much pain that has been wrought because of disobedience to God's word. What we want to find out is what does God desire of us and how can we implement this now in our life? so that we might bring glory to God and have the fullness of what he has designed us to have in this life in accordance with his word. Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for your very revelation that you've given to us to guide us, to direct us, to correct us, to reprove us and to instruct us with righteousness. I thank you for each one here. I just pray, Lord, that you would bless each of us this day as we come together and worship you. I pray for Jim as he brings forth the continued exposition of the book of John, that you would just once again speak through him. We just give you praise for this time of fellowship and that we might be edified by your spirit and bring glory to you as we join together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.